Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Music Therapy Show with Janice Lindstrom. I am Janice Lindstrom, the host and producer of the show. And today is Friday, March 6, 2015. And I am joined today by Dr. Megan Maskow to talk about the Journal of Music Therapy, the latest edition that's come out uh, for Journal Club. Megan, thanks for being on the show with me today. Hi, Janice. How are you doing in Texas? Doing well. We've gotten some North Dakota weather. (laughs) (laughs) You have North Dakota spring weather. That's what you have. Yes, I was going to say, it's probably in a couple of months what North Dakota's (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's jump into the journal. We always talk a lot and run out of time on these shows, so let's get right to it. Uh, We're talking about the winter 2014 edition of the Journal of Music Therapy. And I try to read these articles and come away with something that I can actually apply to what I'm doing professionally. So that is the angle that I took when I read these articles. And that's how I make my decision as to whether I read the entire article or just pieces of it so I can get a, a takeaway from it. Because I don't always need to read all of the results section or the methods section or even the introduction sometimes. I don't need the list review. But that's how I approach the, these articles, and uh, it helped me to find a, a lot of interesting things in here. So the first one was, uh, uh, it was the Invited Feature Article, Single Case Design Studies in Music Therapy, Resurrecting Experimental Evidence in Small Group and Individual Music Therapy Clinical Settings by Camille Geist and John Hitchcock. And um, this article, uh, it described the uh, single case design studies, it's specifically the, the ABAB design, so the repeated, isn't that what I call the repeated measures design? And well, you know, that's what I was always taught I said it's some yeah but yeah so <laughs> but you know actually I prefer to think of it by the ABAB or ABABA uh, I don't know maybe it's because I'm a musician and I think in form I don't know well I like the form it makes sense I try I, I try to translate some of this stuff to people that maybe aren't reading journals <laughs> and I realized that probably even if I say repeated measures, that doesn't really clarify it. <laughs> yeah, or or yeah, or when you go, no, it's a multiple baseline design, and they're like, what? What? Yeah. It's funny. I was actually right. reading the journals. Uh, I've had two trips to Washington D.C. in the last two weeks, and the first one was uh, very research. Actually, they've both been very research based, and so I was. You know, I'd been reading all this really, really high-level research, and then I came back and I read this article, and I thought, "Oh yeah, we're a little bit behind in the mm. music therapy research world." You know, okay, we so don't have very many people. What does hmm? high-level research mean? So you know, like randomized controlled trials, double-blind studies, even single-blind studies, um, things that are really considered to be the standard mark for 
scientific research. And and we are just now starting to figure out how to do that in the music therapy world and how to do it well. And so you have people like, you know, Sherry Robb and Deb Burns and Yoko Brat who are doing, you know, some really, truly incredible research that, you know, even 20 years ago we weren't even thinking about. So it's, you know, we're we're sort of, t- we're finally putting our toe in the, the research water you know, where lots of other professions, medical professions in particular, are, eh, they're pretty far ahead of us in terms of that. But we're starting to catch up. And I actually think this article was really helpful. And I really appreciated um, the way that they, that uh, Camille and John provide information and say, you know what, as a clinician, you can essentially be doing research and adding it to the music therapy evidence base. And even though, you know, even though you may only have one client with which you do this, well, if you have one client and I have one client and 50 other music therapists have one client and we're all sharing our information, um, you know what, then that's actually, that's actually not a bad-sized study. You know, if we're all doing, mm-hmm. you know, multiple baselines or if we're doing these, you know, if we're doing any of these single case designs, we can share that information with each other, that data with each other, and come up with some, you know, hopefully compelling results that does that do help build the evidence base for music therapy and do help and, and does help propel us forward in terms of the scientific foundation, you know, of of our profession and then how we and honestly how we get other people to buy into what we do. We know that what we do is effective. We see it every day in the clinic. Um, but, you know, we need data to help convince other people, like third-party reimbursers, right. that what we do is effective. Right. Or employers. Anybody. That or employers, yes. <laughs> yeah. So what I took away, because I really I'm not in a position to do any kind of research Really, um, I don't have a practice that would support me doing that sort of thing. Um, even if I were, I guess I could probably make it work if I had to. But it's just a, as a solo practitioner, business owner, it's just not feasible for me to do it right now. Um, but it did remind me of when I studied all of this way back in school, twenty-five years ago. That. Uh, <laughs> And how we did graphs. And and right now I'm supervising practicum students and I'm trying to teach them how to take data and write goals and observable and measurable objectives and, and uh, uh, to graph their data. Um, and so reviewing these types of, of study designs, it not only gives me some idea, some, excuse me, some uh, examples to show students about how to graph data, but it also mm-hmm. reminds me kind of the purpose for teaching this in the first place. It's really to do this sort of, of work. Yep. So yep, that I was my main takeaway agree. from this article. So this, this one I doesn't thought it apply was really well written and useful. I did too. I, I, it, was, um, it, it was easy to read. I don't care for a lot of abbreviations, I still had to remind myself every time what SCD means, but it's single case design. Uh, and then they use the percentage of non-overlapping data abbreviation, which I just I find the abbreviations in research a little bit ridiculous sometimes. But uh, 
I guess that's we just do, that style we do of like our acronyms. <laughs> I know. So, um, but given the even with those acronyms that were a little silly, um, this one was pretty easy to read, um, relatable. Mm-hmm. You have anything else to say about it? I don't. want to move on. Okay. Yeah. Then. We'll jump on to the effects of dyadic music therapy intervention on parent-child interaction, parent stress, and parent-child relationship in families with emotionally neglected children. A randomized controlled trial. There you go. I know. Now, we, now I need to ask. Be, I know. Now I need to add these folks to my list of names that I spout off when I talk about people doing this research. This is done in Denmark. Love Kathy McKinney. Right, Kathy McKinney, and Stein Jacobson, and Ola Hulk. And I hope I didn't butcher your names, but uh, I like this one too. It. I tried to do something similar to this for my master's thesis. Um, but with a different population of medically fragile infants as opposed to emotionally neglected children. Um, mm. And uh, what I learned doing that was how difficult research is. And so it's a nice little exercise on a way that one could do research if one did have the numbers and time <laughs> to do that. Mm-hmm. I had a very small size. But uh, I liked this article because I am a parent and I don't feel confident most of the time. But it reminded me of some of the things that I do with my child and and how many other parents might feel, especially if either the parent or the child has a diagnosis of some kind, which might lead them to seek out uh, therapy, and how uh, music and music making can create that bond between people and help to demonstrate healthy interactions for people that may not, it, it doesn't come naturally to. Well, and I I mean, I can speak to that a little bit because my son has an autism spectrum disorder, and when he was young, I mean very young, you know, that's one of the things we actually did was we very purposefully sought out music therapy for us as a family because, you know, when you have a child who has, who requires so much structure and where you you kind of have to just you just have to be you know there's not a lot of time to play because you're so you know busy thinking about okay I have to make sure he eats and I have to make sure you know and then we have to practice those table skills those eating skills and we have to practice social skills and we have to practice our speech stuff there's just there's so much work you know to be done yeah, when you're a parent therapy. And everything becomes therapy. And it was funny because I actually, we actually went to music therapy to sort of relearn how to play, mm-hmm. and which was marvelous. And it did help a lot. It really did. So, Plus, when you are I, engaging in something like music making with your child, it does help you to feel more competent as a person. I mean, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm a pretty competent person, and I'm a pretty accomplished music therapist. But I am I still feel like the biggest noob of a parent on the planet. <laughs> like it is nineteen months old almost now. So I feel like you know what, I mine's like almost other parents 15. are doing so much better than me. <laughs> oh, you know what, mine's almost fifteen, and I still feel like that. So my mom, yeah, my mom says the first forty years are the hardest. The first forty. Excellent. So when I'm eighty, I'll start to feel good as a parent. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um. It it is helpful to engage in this type of play and music making 
um, even though that you might be doing it in a therapeutic setting, as the parent, it, as the therapist, you're helping the parent and the child play with each other and relate to each other in a different way. You know, working on those other life skills of trying to eat and stress and sleep and all of those other exhausting tasks that you do. And it, it's a it's a nice reminder of of that bond. And so. From this particular article, that's what it reminded me of, is how important the work that we do can be for that mother or the parent and the child together. Well, and they did see, um, you know, they did see some significant differences in terms of results. And and one of them was for parent-child interaction, that the group that received the music therapy services did, in fact, see a significant improvement in those parent-child interaction scores as compared to the control group. So there you go. Yes. Then the next article was on the effect of musical attention control training on attention skills of adolescents with neurodevelopmental delays. It was a pilot study by Vivara Paciali, Blythe Lagasse, Sandra Penn. And uh, from Charlotte and Colorado State, where the two universities involved. Mm. The Queens University of Charlotte, I guess I should say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this one was studying a specific um, attention intervention. Um, the musical attention control training is was a. Uh, uh, I don't know, it's a term coined by the neurological music therapist people. And the, what I really liked about this um, article was the descriptions of the types of attention yeah. that were in the, the middle of the article. So I feel like, again, I'm working with practicum students, and they are working on um, creating their goals and objectives, and they, they pick... Um, cognition as an area that they want to work on, but they don't understand what cognition actually means yet because they're mm. sophomores. And um, the attention is um, is a complex cognitive task, and I don't feel like it's well understood without these types of descriptions. So these were very clear, and they gave examples of what the music therapist researcher would might do to address it, um, and the examples were pretty clear, and I felt like they could be adapted for different populations or be a springboard for ideas for working on those different types of attention. And what an amazing array of measures they used. There yeah. were a lot. <laughs> there were a lot. But they, but they also provide really great descriptions of each individual measure and how it related specifically to the thing that they were trying to measure, you know, sustained attention or selective attention or that ability to switch attention, which, you know, I, was really nice to read. So often you read journal articles and they're like, well, we use we used this measure and this measure and this measure, and you think, okay, am I supposed to know what that is? You know, right. a little help, please. So I thought overall I noticed that throughout the reading all of the articles in this journal edition is that it seemed they did seem pretty easy to read for the most part, and they seemed really descriptive. Like, I could, if I were wanting to actually replicate this study, 
I felt like I knew enough just from reading this article of what they did to where I could probably do that. Mm-hmm. So I, yep. I was wondering if that was a an aim of the editorial board to push us in that direction to where well, the you know, research is written more clearly so it's more easily understood what actually is happening. And, and right, that's, there's a that's lot like a fundamental of concept of the scientific method. Right. Right that, right, that you should be able to replicate the research that you read. Yes. I felt like, though, a lot of the research that had been written, at least in our journals, which is what I'm most exposed to because they show up on my doorstep because I'm a member of AMTA, um, that, that it wasn't quite easy to do. I mean, I didn't mm-hmm. feel like reading those, like most of the, in earlier editions, I didn't feel like I knew enough just from reading the article of what they did. Mm-hmm. So, yep. way to go, editors of the JMT. Yeah, thank you, editorial board. Mm-hmm. So All right. this the the next article I'm gonna take lead on because it's I found it to be unbelievably applicable to my own life living as a researcher, and so this was the article that was called "Recruiting Participants for Randomized Controlled Trials of Music Therapy: A Practical Illustration." And there's quite the cadre of people on this article. We have Dr. Sam Porter, Dr. Tracy McConnell, Dr. Fiona Lynn, Dr. Katrina McLaughlin, Dr. Christopher Cardwell, and Dr. Valerie Holmes. That's a lot of doctors. Mm -hmm. Um, And they are all from uh, Belfast. Looks like Queen's University Belfast, which I bet it's lovely there this time of year. Um, And essentially this article was sort of about the pitfalls of randomized controlled trials and how can you, and one of the biggest issues that we have when we do studies, right, is recruiting participants and then retaining participants. So when you do things like randomized controlled trials, right, you have to have so many people that are in the study and that complete the study in order for it really to tell you anything. Um, You know, so, and you do that beforehand, before you you know, when you propose the study, you go through and there's all sorts of wonderful math that you can do and actually fabulous online tools where you can go through and you say, okay, you know, I need to, really I want to look for sort of this effect size and and I need, and I'm willing to accept the possibility of this much error in the data. And and then it will, then you essentially tell it, oop okay, tell me how many people I need in my study, and then it tells you. You know, And that might be 50 people, it might be 250 people, it might be 500 people, depending on what you're studying. And it's really hard to get, that, get those people in studies. I'm doing a pilot study right now, and I only have six people that need to be in the pilot study. But it's, you know, I live in a very rural area of the country, and there aren't a lot of people who meet the inclusion criteria. And so it's hard to get six people to, to you know, to sign up sure. for the study. And and that's, and actually that's one of the main reasons why studies fail, is because we don't get enough people to participate in them. And I thought this was such a practical article. Um, it could not have been timelier in my research life. Um you know, they lay out what most of the common reasons are for under-recruitment, um, and then how do you combat those. And they give you, and what's nice is they, they 
have this discussion within the context of an actual study so that you right. can see, okay, in the, right? <laughs> yeah, like in the real world, here's what happens, right? You know, in the real world, what hap- you know, you can write something out on paper and it looks beautiful, and then you give it to actual living, breathing human beings, and it doesn't quite, it's like a session plan, right? Session mm-hmm. plans can seem really beautiful on paper, and then you get there and there are actual clients there. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and they and, and they behave in ways that you didn't anticipate, <laughs> yes. and, and then you have to make modifications. But that's I think that's what I appreciated the most out of this article was they not only did they provide a lot of um, you know research basis for what they were discussing every time they talked about a particular problem, you know, there's at least one or two citations there. So it's not just them saying this. They also have examples from other literature to back up what they're saying. Um, And then they provide you some really concrete things to do. Um, And actually, I have a couple of things that I'm going to start doing with my pilot study based on what I read in this article. You know, things like, you know, weekly emails and updates to the staff at the cancer center where you know where I work for this study. And so they understand what's going on with the recruitment rates and you know just little reminders. And honestly something as simple as a sticker, right? If you if they see a person who meets the inclusion criteria, put a sticker on the chart. <laughs> right. That you know that yeah. seem really simple, but you can do it. And actually, I just I worked with somebody from computer science, and I just emailed him one of the one of the potential problems we have with our study is um, people not remembering to fill out an online log. And I said, you know, can we just program it to send them a message that says, you know, like at nine o'clock every night, that just sends them a little message that says, reminder, please fill out your journal for the day. And he emailed me back, and he's like, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, that's right. So why didn't I, you think of that? You're the computer programmer. <laughs> so this article doesn't necessarily apply to me specifically. And I read the first three paragraphs and got to the third paragraph, and it had the word adumbrating, adumbrating. I don't know what that word is. Anyway, it's, it uses a vocabulary that is just a little outside my comfort level, and I feel like I have a pretty large vocabulary. So that kind of put me off a little bit. But I did like it, and it doesn't necessarily apply because I'm not doing randomized controlled trials. But I did like how it was organized. It seemed very easy to understand. It had it had nine strategies adopted in the protocol development and initial recruitment stages, and then it, with the citations for each of those nine. Uh, strategies, and then it had some strategies developed in response to challenges in recruitment. Those seemed really clear, um, mm-hmm. and it explained the participants' responses and the clinicians' responses, and then the transferable lessons learned. And again, there were six of these lessons, and so they were all outlined with headers and and grouped into small paragraphs, so that it's easier to understand the point that they're trying to make. Um, and, you know, so I, really I like could it. actually see if, if, like, if I have the opportunity to actually work with other board-certified music therapists on a study in the future, you know, I could see actually having one of our team meetings be talking about that article, you know, for mm-hmm. me as the researcher and then for them as clinicians so that we understand, you know, because really then you're talking about two different shareholders 
coming to agreement and understanding, you know, what the plan is. How are we going to make sure that our recruitment numbers are up? So, yeah, really well, really, really well written. For the record, that word means to vaguely foreshadow. I just looked it up. So I looked it up, and it and it said like to outline. It has Ooh. a couple different meanings, and I want to. I it seemed like based on the context that they were using maybe that definition to where they were kind of outlining the controversial debate about the place of RCTs in music therapy research. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was the statement. We begin by adumbrating, or adumbrating, or I don't know how to say it, the controversial debate. So I actually feel the controversy of randomized control trials, they're not my favorite because I feel like it makes everybody try to be the same, and people are not the same. We're all individuals, and even if you control for a bunch of things, then perhaps your recruitment uh, criteria eliminate some people that are underserved. And so then how do we make up for that? So there's all of those issues with the randomized control trials, but this article also had a really nice discussion about why they're necessary, and they were some of the things that you brought up earlier in our discussion today. Mhm. And you know it and that's the thing is when you you know that's one of the reasons we why we have ethics boards, right? It's one of the reasons why every single study at least in the United States that is going to be conducted that uses human subjects has to go through an ethics board review. And that's so that you know we we have to have a plan in place so that if we look at this randomized control trial and we start to get data back and we see that there is a significant benefit to having the treatment, then we we have to revisit that. It's funny, I was just filling out IRB paperwork for my pilot study and one of the questions is have there been one of the questions is have there been any adverse events that you haven't already reported? And the other one is have there been any significant benefits experienced by the participants? Because the idea there is, is is if you see that there's a significant benefit to the group that's receiving the treatment, well then it might be that you actually need to stop the study, and maybe that needs to become the new standard of treatment. Right. You know, that, may, that maybe you've already collected enough data. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's the hard thing. And, I you know, I work with people who are, by and large, terminally ill. And, you know, this whole idea of a wait list control group, well, I don't know that they're going to be alive long enough to right. part, you know, to get the treatment, to get the music therapy treatment, if I put them in the waitlist control. There, so there are a lot of ethical issues that, that you know, that go along with this, and we have to have a plan for figuring out how to address them so that people do receive the treatment that they deserve. And this, so. it is tough to navigate all of those issues. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I. I feel like treatments begin to be designed, and I think about this mostly in the pharma, pharma logic, pharma, pharma the, the medicines, the drugs. Mm-hmm. Somehow I've lost my vocabulary today. Um, but the the drug studies, where a lot of the drug studies have eliminated whole populations of of people, like they have. This is obviously many years ago, but they used to only do the drug studies on white, middle aged men. And mm-hmm. black people and women and Asians are all different. And so then these drugs that are approved for these certain conditions 
don't affect everybody the same way. And so I, I feel that way particularly in a therapy like music therapy, like it should be more individualized. But I know that there's also a place for these randomized controlled trials. And I think that we just need to have a lot of both or all kinds of research. Yeah, it's true. We do. Which really stretches our 6,000 music therapists in the United States uh, body really thinly. Yeah. <laughs> we can't all do everything. So I guess that's just the, the beast that we have to work with right now. All right. So we have uh, the next article is Music Therapy Career Aptitude and Generalized Self-Efficacy in Music Therapy Students. It was written by Hyung Lim and Kathy Beffy, and they used, it seems like in their, in their study, a lot of students from a lot of the schools in the southwestern region. So I kind of felt an affinity towards this one because it's very um, heavily representing the southwestern region. I feel like we're a small region that gets neglected sometimes. But um, this research was done just in uh, this area, and it um, studied the correlation between a music therapy career aptitude test and a generalized self-efficacy scale to see if they would be useful or the combined scores would be useful to help predict academic success in music therapy. So letting us um, is trying to discover ways, uh, tests that we can use to determine before someone spends a lot of money on a degree if they're going to be suited towards that career. So, yeah, and um, can I just say amen? Yeah, <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> it's tough when you're working with students that are not, they don't, this doesn't seem to be the best fit for them. So it be, would be really nice to uh, to have a way for them to determine this before they spend lots of money taking some classes. Well, and you know, and, a, and I we've had so many articles. It seems like in the last year about, you know, sending students to internship and what are the problems that they have, and you know, how do we, you know, how do we, as how do we act as gatekeepers? That was another article. Um, you know, I I kind of like this idea. I'm thinking, you know, I've already got a whole bunch of people that want to be music therapy majors next year, and I'm thinking, I know in my head approximately how many of them will not successfully complete the program, just based right. on past years. Maybe if I just gave them, maybe if I just gave them this test when they came in and said they wanted to be music therapists, maybe we could head some of that off at the pass. Right. Another study for another day. It is. I read it, it, the appendix does have the questions from the Music Therapy mm-hmm. Career Aptitude Test. And I wasn't sure, it doesn't talk, I didn't read this whole article in detail because I wasn't that concerned about how to apply the research and, and all. But, uh, so I wasn't sure how it scored exactly. But I read through the questions and kind of answered yes or no for myself. And I answered what I think was the correct answer for being a good music therapist for 17 out of 20 of these questions. There were three of them that I didn't, that I don't think was answered in the way that it was uh, intended to be if you were right. Yeah, and the the original article is from JMT in 2011, and which means it's on my bookshelf somewhere. 
Um, right. No, I'm, I'm sure that that's, yeah, I'm sure that explanation is in there. I just have to go find it. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, I think the danger about this is that I saw on um, somewhere else, like a blog or a Facebook post or another article in another journal, something about the Myers-Briggs personality type that was best for music therapy. Somebody had done some sort of study or wrote about that. Oh, yeah. And my uh, personality, Myers-Briggs personality, is not the considered ideal. Neither was mine. Based on this article. So I think the caution is that this can guide you and give you some indication as to whether or not somebody might be right for music therapy. But I don't think it it is um, definitive. So I do think we have to be careful about that because I feel like I'm a really good music therapist. I have some evidence, anecdotal evidence, not randomized control trial evidence, but <laughs> I have some evidence <laughs> that indicates that because I've had success with both teaching other people how to be music therapists and in success with my patients that I see. Um, but I don't necessarily fit the, the criteria descriptions. So I, I think that there's other things that need to be considered too. And I'm sure when I was a practicum student and a, a new graduate and an intern that I was just as um, horrific to the, my supervisors as I oh, think I know. Don't you, I, are now. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope my supervisors never tell me what they actually thought of me. I know. <laughs> I hope they just keep it to themselves forever and ever. <laughs> but I try to think about that when I'm giving feedback to students. But I was once not a very good guitar player or, you know, not a good piano player and not maybe not the best singer. But I developed all of that from practicing mm-hmm. and study. So it can happen. <laughs> it doesn't have to be natural. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because one of the speakers at the healthcare summit last Friday at the National Institutes of Health was talking about how NIH has actually developed, I mean, they've spent millions and millions of dollars developing and refining measurement tools to use in research. And the reason is that um, a lot of the standardized tools that we use, the things that we think are really the gold standard, the things that we are always sure to include in a research study, actually aren't that good. They aren't necessarily very reliable or valid. And so NIH has spent a lot of money creating you know, valid and reliable research tools. And I think it's a good object lesson, like you're saying, you know, just because even even if there's something that we have used for a long time that we have thought was a really good measurement tool, you know, take everything with a grain of salt because it might not actually be. But I do right. think it would be interesting to to have students take this test and score it and and not necessarily use it as a way to weed people out of the program, but use it as an advising tool. You well, know, yeah, as an academic self-knowledge and self-reflection. Oh, yeah. You know, as an academic advisor, I tell my students this every semester. You know, every semester I say, here is my advice. But my advice is not law. It's advice. And whether or not you choose to take it is up to you. Right. So, but I do think this could be a a useful advising tool. I I agree. That was my thought with that, too. Um, 
Uh, the last article in this journal was a book review, and the the book review or the book that was reviewed is called Writing Scientific Research Articles, Strategies, and Steps. And um, I didn't get the impression that the authors were music therapists. Um, the person that reviewed the book was Elaine Resty Hernandez, who I believe Yeah, she's is. a doctoral student at the University of Iowa. Yeah. And uh, what I really liked was that this, um, this review was written in such a compelling and clear and easy-to-read way that it kind of made me want to read the book, even though I'm not really engaging in scientific research writing right now. And it also um, described this book, which is describing ways to help people write more clearly. And after just reading an article with the word atom breeding or whatever that word is, <laughs> I thought, hmm, now keep in mind that they're Irish. <laughs> yes, yes. And maybe that's common use in Belfast. <laughs> it could be. It could be. But but um I read papers from students all the time and, and I just I think that this would be a really valuable textbook um for a research class or a, a writing class. Um but it, it, the way that this was written it, it really made me actually want to read the book because it seemed like it was written in a nice, clear way while it's encouraging researchers to write in a nice, clear way. I wholeheartedly agree. So I felt like overall it seemed like this journal edition was trying to encourage more research and to provide assistance with that. That was what Mm -hmm. I took away from it. I am I am very pleased with the direction of our journals. I am too. Yeah. So, thank you so much for another edition of Journal Club participating with me. I like And the, we didn't uh, we didn't get cut off this time. We didn't get cut off this time. So, go us. We're getting better at this. <laughs> <laughs> And I do think that sometime I should have you on the show to talk about some of those exciting things you were doing with um, uh, the NIH and the reasons that you took those trips to D.C. I'm, I'm happy to talk about that sometime. All right. So we will, we'll be in touch and figure out a good schedule for that. All right. Have a great weekend, Janice. Thank you. You do the same. And all right, thank you to all of us who listen to this show. I appreciate it. I will be back on in a couple weeks. Oh, uh, yes, on the 20th is my next scheduled show. And that's going to be the Mommy Support Group edition because the last week of March this month is a conference. The Southwestern Region Conference is happening at the end of the month. So I will most likely be broadcasting from there at some point. So if you want to contact me to give me suggestions about future shows or to ask questions or seek help, because I also offer some coaching and supervision, um, then you can contact me at heartbeatmusictherapy.net. And if you have a question for Dr. Masco, go ahead and contact me at heartbeatmusictherapy.net, and I would be happy to forward your question along. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. <laughs>